Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I am the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. This episode is the second in our series, taking a look at school shootings. In our last show, we had a conversation with David Reedman and Desmond O'Neill, the creators of the K-12 School Shooting Database. In this show, we talk about the school shooting, no, the tragedy that occurred at Great Mills High School last year in St. Mary's County, Maryland. We also talk about training and intervention during and immediately following these events. Then we'll take a look at the differing components of our pre-hospital and hospital care systems and how they have to adapt to this changing dynamic. I think this is a particularly timely show since the one-year anniversary of the Great Mills High School shooting occurred on March 20th, 2018, just one week prior to the release of the show. So let's not waste any more time and welcome my guests, Steve Simons, Jim Morrissey, and Dr. Carol Cunningham. I want to welcome all of you here to our show today. We're going to be discussing school shootings, a major topic that's been going around the country and getting more and more social media than a lot of other important topics. Before we begin, I want to introduce our guests today. We have Dr. Carol Cunningham, Jim Morrissey, and Steve Simons. Welcome. Before we actually get into the material that we're going to do, how about we get a nice introduction from each of you. Just give our listeners a little background of who you are, where you came from, and whatever information you want to really give. Steve? My name is Steve Simons. I'm a lieutenant with the St. Mary's County Sheriff's Office, which is actually located in Southern Maryland. I'm a patrol commander, and I also do homeland security for my agency. I've been in law enforcement for about 20 years. During that time, I've had an opportunity to be with uh, the patrol division. I was a canine handler for a while with an explosives detection dog. I spent a few years in the gang intelligence unit. And uh, currently, uh, like I said, I'm currently in patrol as a lieutenant. Hi, uh, Jim Morrissey here. I'm the tactical medical program director for Alameda County EMS. I was also attached to the San Francisco FBI SWAT team as a paramedic, and I was on that team for 18 years. And also, I do a fair amount of writing and training. So I've written a bunch of articles on active shooter response and school shootings, and mostly from the preparedness end of things and the response. Um, And I've been sort of shifting gears now after facilitating hundreds of exercises nationally and internationally on how do you run exercises successfully so that everybody gets the most out of it. And exercises can be uh, rewarding, or sometimes they're extremely frustrating. So I've been focusing a lot on that now. Dr. Carol Cunningham, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for having us here. I am the state medical director for the Ohio Department of Public Safety uh, Division of EMS. I also practice emergency medicine at the Level 1 Adult Trauma Center in Ohio. I'm on the executive steering committee of the Department of Homeland Security's First Responder Resource Group and uh, just joined the Center of Homeland Defense and Security Here's mobile education team. So we go out to different communities and discuss what their concerns are, kind of give open panels and identify any gaps that they may have that they want to address, really with the goal of solidifying community resilience and preparedness. 
I'm really happy all three of you are here because I've got a really deep knowledge and experience base of people to talk with. So school shootings, hot topic, hits every aspect or every part of our country. Steve, you actually had a high school. It was a high school shooting. It was a high school, uh, Great Mills High School, which is about in St. Mary's County, 70 miles southeast of Washington, D.C. This occurred last year in March of 2018. I've been doing this almost 20 years, and typically it's stuff that you see on the news. It's always affecting a different community. It's a, a school somewhere else in the country. You know it hits home for some people, but until it hits home, you can only speculate. And for us, it hit home last year, and I had the misfortune of working that day. My squad was working, and and we were the some of the first ones on the, on the scene, and it's definitely chaotic. Somebody once said, and I don't know who, I think Ben Franklin gets credited, but he didn't say it. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. I think one reason that our day went so smooth and that how we were able to respond and handle is because we had the preparation ahead of time. We had practiced the drills, put the training in, had the proper equipment. You have to. Even if you don't think it could ever happen in your community, you need to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Jim's look on his face over there completely agrees, and so does Carol. So what were some of the takeaways? And everyone here, interject whenever you want. This is not a one-sided conversation. We want everyone to engage and talk. But what were some of the key things your department did to prepare for that type of incident and have it go off as successfully as it can go off? I have to give a lot of that credit to our sheriff, Tim Cameron. He's very forward-thinking, very prepared, not so much of what's happened in the past, but what's on the horizon. So prior to the shooting, we actually had trained the entire agency on active shooter response. That emphasized the single officer response without delay. You know, in years past, the methodologies have changed a little bit over the years. After Columbine, they didn't want a perimeter set up, right? Because people are getting shot inside of a building. You need to neutralize the threat. And then the kind of the next phase that some years later we trained for was, you may have heard of the diamond formation, where you get two or four people on the scene and then you go in in that pattern. That's not relevant anymore. So the way that we train is, if you're on the scene and you hear shooting inside, even if you're the only one, you're going towards the shooting. Your objective is to neutralize that threat. And we train all of our personnel that way. Additionally, uh, with the equipment, we had been issued combat medicine first aid kits that includes tourniquets, which was actually used uh, on one of the victims the day of the shooting at Great Mills. We have lights for our handguns now. Every officer is trained and qualified on AR-15 rifles. When we do train, it's not days of standing in front of a target and just trying to hit center mass or gain points. It's not practical. And when we train now, it's as realistic as possible. A lot of times that's shooting and moving, transitioning from a rifle to a handgun using the tourniquet, right? Hey, you've been shot. We use munition sometimes. You have don't have uh, use of your one of your arms. You have to be able to transition and operate. And if you don't train for that, then you're just winging it. And you might get lucky, but planning is key. 
Jim, do you have something? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is uh, in another example of a, of a solid pocket of enlightenment. And I think, thankfully, you know, the law enforcement community has wholly transitioned to sole op- uh, officer response and mitigating that threat and rapidly without delay. You know, and their first priority is to stop the killing. That includes moving over injured people, moving past screaming people, other than maybe getting some intel as to where the shooter is. So, you know, I would say confidently that the universal law enforcement community community around the country has stepped up, is ready to go, and, and will go, you know, every time, with very few exceptions. I think the second phase of after stop the killing is stop the dying, and that is getting to the injured people. And law enforcement are not only carrying other uh, medical kits for themselves, but they can initiate casualty care, assuming the threat is eliminated or mitigated, which is also great. There's still a little bit of delay in some parts of the country of getting the medical assets into the scene quickly once that threat is uh, neutralized or stabilized. But it's getting better, and hopefully in the next little bit of time, it'll be another universal accomplishment for the EMS side. And Carol, you run a lot of these type of incidents in Ohio. Yeah, I actually was um, personally involved in two uh, active shooter events, uh, the first being the Wycliffe Middle School shooting in 1993, where I was the only physician on duty in a community hospital. And, you know, the first call we got was, you know, seven kids down. It it ended up being uh, four kids and three adults. And then five minutes away from where I live was the Chardon School shooting. So it was interesting to look at the evolution of the preparation of the lay people, the teachers and businesses, pre- and post-Columbine. Having said that, and I have a disclaimer, I'm on the board of directors of the Committee on Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, you know, we've also evolved from translating military models into civilian models. We have an EMS Homeland Security Committee uh, at the state, and we were just talking and went around the table, and it was pretty sobering to realize that just about every person at the table had either been involved or had a family member involved into an active shooter. We took that scary day and turned it into a mode of action. And um, I'm really proud to say that the state of Ohio is the first state in the nation now that is requiring rescue task force concept awareness training to be taught in all of our EMS schools. And it's also going to be required for recertification if you're a current provider. I will throw in there that California has also mandated that be Assembly Bill 1598. So other states are stepped up as well. Which, and and which, we hope every state yeah, does. Yeah, and that's, that's the, the critical thing is this podcast is just one of the ways the information, we're trying to convey it wherever we can to so people know the different things that are out there, different programs, different policies. The active shooter stuff that we originally developed here in California, and it was in Southern California where we first worked on it, has... It's the first concept of uh, Firescope and Post that actually did the project together, and the entire state of California operates in a similar function wherever you are. And across the country, I noticed the same things that are happening. So the sharing of information, the sharing of training, the lessons learned and um, from conducted from after-action reviews, it's amazing how we're able to transfer that information back and forth and learn from each other and grow. Preparedness is really key, and the training is really key. So... Going to the school shooting that you had, Steve, your officers engaged. How did their training and preparation help or hinder the actual event? In this particular incident, it was entirely over in under three minutes. The first patrol officer that arrived on the scene, 
the threat had already been neutralized. And that is credited towards our school resource officer at Great Mills High School, Deputy Blaine Gaskell. And essentially, he heard a shot fired, located it, you know, went towards the gunshot and turned a corner and basically was face to face, a few feet in between him, the suspect. And when everything was said and done and the investigations were over, and uh, this is all open source and public knowledge, the suspect, 17-year-old male student that went to the school and had a little bit of a domestic component, the young lady that was shot and killed, uh, they had dated previously. And he came to school that morning with the intention, at least, of shooting her, which uh, and he did. And, and unfortunately, she succumbed to her injuries and she died. Another student was uh, shot in the leg, presumably by the same bullet that passed through. When our school resource officer turned that corner, I truly believe that the suspect knew it was done. It was over. He now is in a confrontational situation. He turns the gun to himself, and simultaneously he pulls the trigger, and the officer fires as well. And then our other units start arriving. But again, all that occurred within three minutes. And a lot of these school shootings um, that go on much longer, I think that's due to using tactics, older tactics. And they, they, you know, when you set a perimeter up, you're, you're asking for that to continue. So Deputy Gasco had the same training that all of our officers have. But it wasn't just the sheriff's office. I don't want to paint the picture that they swooped in and saved the day and wrapped all this stuff up. It really is a collaborative effort. Not not just between local, federal, state, Maryland State Police were uh, on the scene. We had an officer on his way home from Prince George's County, not even in our county that was in uniform that got got word of it and came by to help. He had a son that went there. So it truly is a community involvement. In addition to that, the Board of Education, the school system, these are conversations that really need to occur before any incident occurs because you don't want that to be your first conversation conversation. And fortunately for St. Mary's County, all of that had been put in play prior to that collaboration. Additionally, we in Southern Maryland, it's a tri-county situation. So our neighboring counties, we have understandings with them. And and we had a lot of assistance from Charles County and Calvert County. And so, I mean, uh, resources got there very quickly. But again, fortunately, the threat had been neutralized in the beginning. And then you move into other measures of trying to make sure there's no additional shooters and get the students out properly. It was a bit chaotic that morning. Parents were converging on the school. They want answers. They had students in the parking lot, people that were on their way into school when it happened, and then they got put on lockdown and they were stuck outside. It truly is very chaotic. It's a very complex incident. And there are a couple, everything you said was pretty amazing to me, but there are two critical things I think you said in there that I really wanted to touch on. Uh, One of them is the collaborative effort. And that's why we have different fields here, because it's not just a law enforcement incident. You've got fire and EMS. In some areas, fire is EMS. Other areas, they are separate. And you've also got your schools, and you've got your parents, and you've got the students. So you have to, and, and what you touched upon was you need to know and communicate with the people before on the blue sky day, not when the the day of an incident. So I really appreciate that part. But going to the fire EMS side and more towards the EMS side, um, Jim, what type of training maybe in Alameda County do you guys do to prepare for these types of incidents? Well, again, as you gave um, credit to your sheriff, um, Steve, our sheriff, 
Greg Ahern started a huge exercise called Urban Shield. We started this in 2007. It's the largest multidiscipline exercise that goes on for 48 hours straight in the world. And it involves fire, law, EMS, emergency management, community preparedness, and then some. So it's expanded. There are about 7,000 people a year involved in this 48-hour exercise. That's even longer than that. And so we've been doing these exercises and involving all the locals and international competitors as well in this event. But, you know, I wouldn't say we're we're the pocket of enlightenment in the country. I think it's known, and and whether it's the Department of Homeland Security, the Hartford Consensus, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, the EMS associations, you know, all the national entities have given support to this change in paradigm to get medical assets into the scene quickly or get the patients out, you know, whatever makes the most sense at the time. That has shifted, and we did have state legislation to mandate training and cooperative multidiscipline coordination, training, and exercise to better our preparedness. And so, you know, I've facilitated hundreds of these exercises around the country and around the world, and you really do have to bring everyone together, including the community. And as, as Dr. Cunningham was talking about, you know, embracing the community as well in preparedness and response. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who can address major hemorrhage, including the students, including the teachers, and positioning a victim before the medical assets get in there. But from the EMS side, both fire and private, I think there's been a recognition and an appreciation for the specific training, what we call point-of-wounding care. So instead of walking around triaging everybody, it's it's find that massive hemorrhage, address it, find that, that life threat, and we've undertaken a whole concept, which is not new, but it's injury to surgery. And especially with these injuries to the head, neck, torso, belly, if they're alive now, we need to get them to the trauma center in the absolute quickest possible way, or they may die. So I think everybody's on board, law enforcement, fire, EMS, transport, dispatch, and certainly the hospitals are better prepared now to receive an incredible surge of patients, you know, including the community hospitals. You know, in the Las Vegas shooting, you know, people are punching in hospital, not trauma center. And so they're showing up en masse in personal vehicles, law enforcement vehicles, to these hospitals that are all of a sudden getting hit with 20 or 30 patients that they're not prepared to do. So I think, you know, again, all the disciplines are stepping up, recognizing the threat and and addressing the the needs. And you know what? I'm not even going to say a word about the hospitals because that's what you're here for. So, Carol, <laughs> uh, this is a good transition. So we've, we've, we've already talked a bit about, about the actual an incident, a real school shooting, the tactics and uh, tools that were implemented to mitigate the situation, going into the fact of addressing life-threatening injuries right away on the pre-hospital care side. And then in the hospital, and I'm not going to just silo you to the hospital, Carol, because you're, you're both sides of the aisle here, but... What are some of the things that happen in the hospital that maybe we aren't thinking about in the field? Well, I think number one is just like taking care of a child is not the same thing as taking care of an adult. What keeps me up at night was that phone call that I got in 93 saying, first it was elementary school shooting, then middle school shooting. It's not just getting somebody to a hospital. It's not just getting somebody to a trauma center. We do have a trauma network, but... Ohio has either the most or the second largest number of trauma centers uh, in the nation. And when I get a phone call, and I'm already petrified because I've got seven potentially kids who are critically ill, we also have to realize that adult trauma centers are not prepared to take care of kids. 
you know, pediatric shootings are different. Pediatric trauma centers and acute care centers are a rarity still. Our nation does not have enough of them. I wanted to make sure you had accurate data, and, and the American uh, Trauma so- Society emailed me this morning with their current count. And in the United States, there's only 146 pediatric trauma centers, and only 82 of them are level ones. So to take an, an injured child to a trauma center, an adult trauma center, you've got a trauma surgeon who probably hasn't worked on a five-year-old or a six-year-old since their residency, and that's not ideal care. So it's great if we can get these kids to a hospital, but I think it actually puts more onus on EMS to make sure that they're doing everything whether it's supporting the airway, positioning the kids. You have to oxygenate these kids, stopping bleeding, putting chest seals on, because once a kid gets hypoxic and they arrest, they're done, period. It doesn't matter what else that you do. I think the other thing that we need to start educating communities about are the fact that the, the circumference of a child's arm is like less than 17 centimeters, which is smaller than well, the way a, the, a tourniquet can tighten that. So tell the community, don't waste time with tourniquets on that. Just put manual pressure on it to stop the bleeding. I think the other issue with kids is, I would say this, you know, there's kids every place in America. And it's great that we have these big city systems or suburban systems that work together, but we truly aren't prepared until every community, no matter how small, is able to respond and work pretty quickly to not only respond, treat, but triage these patients to the right place. I have counties in Ohio that don't have a hospital within their border. What are we going to do for them to make sure that when that school shooting happens in their community, and eventually it will, that their children are not dying because there is no plan or the closest trauma center is two hours away? How do we fill those gaps? And those are, that's part of our infrastructure that we need to address. Yeah, so huge part. Because so, if we aren't protecting our children, our children are the future of America. Yeah, and so, Jim, as it goes for like our, the equipment that we carry... And I've been a medic since 95, so I have a little bit of background with it. I know the equipment we carry in the field. We have both adult and pediatric size equipment. And this might be more for Carol, but in the hospitals that are adult trauma centers versus pediatric trauma center, besides a doctor not touching a child for a long time, is the equipment and supplies within that hospital capable of taking care of the children? Not consistently. You know, again, to be certified as an adult trauma center, you have to have so much adult equipment. And I'm not sure if the pediatric process is part of being certified. And and it's not even just the surgeons. You know, anesthesiologists in adult hospital, when's the last time that they safely anesthetized a child? Once these people are out of surgery... You're in a hospital that doesn't have a pediatric ICU, doesn't have a neonatal ICU. None of the ICU nurses have that pediatric training to the level that's required for the child's injury. Right. And so here in California, we we do have a system set up for communicating with our local hospitals, identifying the number of beds they have, the type of care that they can give. But when you have something overwhelming or you have the people who are transporting themselves to the hospital, the hospitals are going to be inundated. Is there something that can be done on a pre-planning phase that we take that into account, that there will be the people who are, are taking themselves, that these hospitals maybe can be prepared to maybe initially stabilize the patient? And then we handle the transportation to the appropriate facility later. Well, I think most emergency departments have 
even a crash cart that, that's there for peds, but not every, not every emergency department does. But that's a gap, I think, that can be filled. And, but the other challenge, though, is the staffing of the emergency department. If you're a board-certified emergency physician, you've been trained for, to take care of everybody. But there are a lot of areas where that doc is, doesn't have that training. Right. Okay. And or, or like you'd mentioned earlier, it's been a long time since they've uh, practiced that. Correct. Um, Jim, do you have something else? Yeah. Well, I say in, in California, there are recent regulations passed on enhancing the pediatric readiness and preparedness for all emergency departments, <clears throat> which is great because I would agree that that is a huge gap. And so, you know, uh, we just got a, a grant recently through the Urban Area Security Initiative to enhance pediatric trauma surge capacity in every hospital because that's a huge gap. That scares a lot of people, good, experienced medical practitioners. You get handed a little baby who's critically injured, that gets everybody's pucker factor up unless you do that every day. Thankfully, in Alameda County, we do have a level one children's hospital, UCF Benioff, connected with uh, San Francisco. So we do have great capacity. And they are the leaders of training the other hospitals in our area on enhancing their pediatric readiness. So, But in addition to pediatrics, I think we are talking about school shootings. And there is, obviously, the younger ones are peds. The older ones are, are really more like young adults. The good thing, I think, is that enhancing the EMS capacity and training and equipment and making sure that they have more than one tourniquet in the ambulance. And there are other tourniquets that are actually applicable for pediatric use, like the SWAT-T I'll do a commercial for, and as well as canines as well. That's another subgroup. Dogs are cops, too, and we want to take care of them and give them preparedness uh, and have the same medical equipment ready. So we are training our responders and equipping them properly to be able to deal with that trauma-induced mass casualty event, which really, all these are, once the threat's eliminated, it is an MCI, and people do train for that effectively, and we really emphasize the recognition of those critical patients, getting them off the X, getting them moving to the proper uh, facility quickly and effectively with whatever transport is available. Frank, just real quick, I want to bring the conversation back around the ground a little, maybe for some of your younger listeners, school age or high school that are concerned to the point of paranoia. I do agree with Carol. It's not a matter of if, but when. But on the same token, if you look at these numbers, and they're all tragedies, but with the number of schools and students that we have across this country, thank goodness this is not a daily occurrence. And one life lost is too many. But I don't want to paint a picture, like I said, for the younger people where they're, uh, you know, because that impacted us in our community just from this one incident. I mean, it still is with us today with the anxiety for the students and for the fear that other stuff is going to happen. Unfortunately, you have people that we've been dealing with a lot on the back end of uh, additional threats that are unrelated for whatever reason, whether people think it's funny or uh, it's not. It's not funny at all, but that raises anxiety levels. So just to ground it, it's an insurance, right? I mean, you need to be prepared. Some people have been driving for 30 years and never been in a car accident, but they have insurance. If, if something does happen, then they're prepared to deal with it. And I would relate this a lot to that. The previous podcast that is coming out prior to this podcast is the K-12 school shooting database. And there's a lot of information inside there, and it's a very broad spectrum information. So anyone wanting to do any type of research on it can access that database and actually see the numbers. And I believe, um, off memory, it's 50 million kids in school every day in public schools and 6 million in private schools. That doesn't count charter schools or, or homeschooling, but that's a lot of children, 56 million kids in school every day. 
and over the last 50 years, according to the databases, and they have a very broad spectrum, as, as I mentioned, they have about 1,354 school shootings. So it's been in the news. It's been repeated multiple times, and the term of epidemic has come up multiple times. But there's consistency over the last 50 years, and that database really does demonstrate that. So the preparedness and the practice and the identification of gaps is absolutely critical because it is those incidents that are highly intensive but very infrequent and we need to be prepared to be able to manage those those type of incidents and successfully. So I think we've covered a lot of areas here and, and I want to just put out there, is there something that any one of you wanted to say that hasn't been hit or that would be good to contribute to this? Well, first of all, I love the database. I think it's fantastic. As I was going through the legislative process to convince our board and, and as well as other agencies to accept our, our mandate for rescue task force training, you know, the analogy that we always used was that, you know, as an EMS provider, you may only deliver one baby in your whole career, but you still got to know how to do it. And you may only have one active shooter event, but you get one chance and you got to do it right. So we certainly are teaching everybody the TECC guidelines, make sure everybody knows about that. I think everybody also needs to realize that there's free courses out there. You don't have to pay a lot of money to, to, to learn about it. You know, FEMA is using CTECC in their, um, I think the course number is PERS 356. It's free, it's online. That's something that the volunteer EMS agency who doesn't have enough money to put gas in their tank, they can go online and at least get some training. And certainly in Ohio, we're providing, when anytime we mandate things, we try and provide free resources, but they're open to everybody. They're not copyrighted. And other states wants to use it, have at it. We love it. That's, that's great. And Jim, do you have anything? I think we've covered, you know, the response aspect of it pretty well. What I think, you know, clearly the effort now is this concept of left of boom. You know, can we identify these red flags and can we mitigate them before they happen? And there's been great work done on that. Unfortunately, you know, some of these are, are not predictable. They are relatively spontaneous and no one saw it coming. I would say there are others that people after the fact say, you know, I'm not surprised this this kid is a, a firecracker ready to go. And those are the really the heartbreaking ones because there could have been some efforts to, to squelch that before it ever became an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of a really good segue because this is a three-part series on school shootings. So the first one, we did speak with K-12 school shooting database individuals and then we're talking about the actual incident and response. And the podcast that's going to come out after this one is on addressing those red flags and the recovery aspect for the students. And it's not just one and done. It's, it could go on for years for the school and the students to actually recover. I also think we need to incorporate non-medical things that we can do to help survivors. My most critical victim at the Wycliffe Middle School shooting afterwards told me, he knew he was hurt bad. He knew he was dying. But the thing he remembers most that as I was rushing him out to the helicopter on a, st on a stretcher, I never quit holding his hand. If holding somebody's hand gives them the will to live, let's hold everybody's hand. A little human compassion right there. Yeah. 
Well, I was just going to say uh, our thoughts and prayers continue to go out to not just St. Mary's County, all the victims and their families across the country over the years that have been involved in these types of incidences. It truly is life-changing, not for the best, and it's a burden and a weight that people continue to carry, and it takes a very long time uh, to heal. So first and foremost, that. Secondly, if there are agencies out there that haven't practiced, that they haven't prepared, I would strongly encourage them to start sooner rather than later. You're just going to benefit your community, your citizens. It needs to be done. And, you know, hopefully you'll never have to uh, employ this in real life. But if you do, then you'll be that much more confident. The collaboration is a big takeaway from our event and also in in general, because you can't, no one agency can do it on their own. You can't. You're you're not an expert in every field. I don't know uh, much about the hospitals or anything. I mean, we, meaning law enforcement, look for that type of guidance and direction from, you know, multi-agencies and everything. And we're all in it together. So uh, I appreciate you having us here today. And it's a very important topic. I wish we had hours that we could delve down more into the weeds. But well, that's that's the reason why uh, breaking this up into three separate podcasts and different guests on each podcast to get multiple perspectives multiple disciplines and various experiences from throughout the country. So I actually do appreciate all three of you joining me today. This has been awesome. I do appreciate it. And what you brought to this show, I think, is going to be very valuable to the people who are listening to it. What I'm going to do is some of you are able to give and some cannot give ways of contact. So if somebody wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. And um, and when we're done recording, I'll get that information. And then whoever's interested or has some questions, maybe they could reach out to you. Carol, thank you so much. Oh, Jim, thanks for having us. Not a problem. Jim, thank you. Thank um, you, Frank. It's great information from the northern side of the state of California. And Steve, thanks for uh, representing the East Coast over there. Thank you. All right, thank you. So there you have it. Dr. Carol Cunningham, Lieutenant Steve Simons, and Jim Morrissey each of whom have offered their perspectives and experiences while contending with school shootings and what is needed to prepare and respond to these types of incidents. What I found most interesting with this conversation is the complexity and exhaustive hours dedicated to prepare for, respond to, and mitigate school shooting incidents. Sadly, the impact from school shootings doesn't end once the last person is transported to the hospital. This past week, a statement from the St. Mary's County Sheriff's Office cited multiple threats that were circulated over social media and through text messages. These threats fortunately were unfounded, but were directed to the school district within St. Mary's County. Additionally, these threats coincided with the one-year anniversary school shooting at Great Mills High School. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, this podcast is the second in a three-part series dedicated to school shootings. Our next episode delves into the local impact, red flag indicators, and some planning efforts currently underway addressing these topics. To be able to get a hold of any of our guests, contact information will be in our show note. As always, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous, share. Share it with your friends. Share it with your peers. If you would, also leave a review and subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be there for you. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host. Until our next episode, take care.